that. By the way, Kim, I may tell a few people. Um, I just love talking about her. We all love talking about the loves of our life. But what if the love of our life is also Lord of our life? What's that like? How does that sound? I want us to think about that today. Turn with me uh, in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 3. It's on page 1202 if you're using a pew Bible. 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to be looking at primarily verses 15 and 16. Uh, But to put it in in context, I'd like us to read um, beginning with verses 13 and and through verse 17. So 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, beginning with verse 13. Who Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts... Set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better, if it's God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Past few weeks, I've been working with some of you in a class. We've been looking at the question of what does an authentic follower of Christ look like? What distinguishes a Christian from everyone else? Or maybe to word it differently, if your coworker, your neighbor, your friend, your your schoolmate they were asked to make an argument that proves you follow Christ, what would they say? Would they refer to the sort of rudimentary fish symbols we have on the the back of our cars? Would they cite the fact that on your Facebook profile you've identified yourself as a Christian or, or some pithy statement regarding your faith? Maybe they'd say, well, he always signs his emails with blessings or peace. There's always a Bible verse in the signature. I go to his place of work and there's a little placard that dedicates this place to God. In his home or in her home, there are serene pictures of nature with Bible verses below them hung up on every wall. Would that be their proof? Does the... Testimony of our faith sometimes becomes simply the personal advertisements of our faith. Is the message of who we are in Christ often reduced to our own public relations project? Or is it more? Would they make a different argument? I, I think Peter is plumbing the depth of this a bit more giving 
giving us what a follower of Christ looks like. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Could there be a more scandalous statement? But in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Keep in mind, when Peter wrote this, he's writing to uh, Gentile believers who have come out of the pagan world. They're living in the northwest quadrant of Asia Minor. And to say Christ is Lord was treason. Because to say Christ is Lord was akin to saying Caesar is not Lord. This was a tough statement. It's a tough statement today. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Right out there, first position, the foundational statement Peter gives us before he talks about hope, before he talks about giving answers, before he talks about gentleness and respect, he talks about setting apart, revering Christ as Lord. I think this is the, the, first, the first sign, the first indication, the first thing that separates a true follower of Christ from one who pretends. Set apart Christ as Lord in your heart, in that place of volition, in that place where understanding and will are married. In our hearts, we set apart Christ as Lord. Notice what it doesn't say. What Peter doesn't mention. He doesn't come off and say the first foundational thing we need to do is believe in God. Because let's face it. Believing in God is relatively easy. Talking about faith is relatively easy. We, we can talk about God. We can talk about faith. Statistically, an overwhelming majority of people believe in God. I mean, you hear it all the time. Someone will say, someone's looking out for me. Everything happens for a reason. I mean, even those pedestrian statements speak to some affirmation of a providential presence. It's easy to talk about God because God means nothing in our culture. It's devoid of any real definition. You're sitting in uh, the salon getting your hair cut those of you with hair, and, you know, you're, you're, you're talking with Monique, Stefan, whoever, and you're working on, you know, talking about your life, you can talk about God with them. They'll talk about God with you. God is vanilla, right? I mean, we can fill it however we want to fill it. It's a tabula rasa just awaiting us to color. And in our world, we can talk about God, and we can even talk about faith. That's okay. Whatever you want it to be. Revere, set apart Christ as Lord. Have you noticed when you mention the name Jesus, when you say the word Christ, it changes. The atmospheric pressure in the room Titan, right? I mean, you can, it, it's tangible. You sense people now wanting to change the conversation, now wanting to kind of move away from it. 
You feel the heaviness of, of saying the name even before you say it. So much you almost don't say it. Because you know what's going to happen when you do. You see, when we say Christ, when we say the name Jesus, we no longer allow God to be vanilla. We have made a claim that is an exclusive claim about who God is. We have made a statement that says the revelation of God is this, non-negotiable. Set apart Christ, Christ as Lord. That's sometimes the hard part. Notice Peter doesn't say, set apart in your heart Christ as Savior. Don't get me wrong. It's not because Peter doesn't hold Christ as Savior. We're going to get to that when we talk about hope. But I think in a lot of ways, for me, maybe for you, the Savior part is easy. Christ as Savior is pleasant. It's more palpable. It's easier for me to say Christ as Savior, to, to speak of the imperishable delights of, of God's grace and of His mercy, of His taking away of my sin, of His forgiving of my debts, of His you know, granting me the glory of salvation. It's pleasant to talk about because, in truth, I benefit from Christ as Savior. I gain from Christ as Savior. But Christ isn't, I can't just simply have Christ on the cross. He is also seated at the right hand of God. His name is above every name. Christ isn't only Savior, Christ is also Lord. Savior and Lord are not synonymous. He is not Lord because he's my Savior, as if it's some sort of reciprocal exchange, a tit for tat. Well, you saved me, I'll call you Lord. He is Lord. He is Lord because of who he is. He is God and he is holy. When we moved to Illinois a few years back, before I started my studies at Marquette, we were uh, living in a duplex near my parents' house. Uh, it was in the Midwest. My boys were two and four. And it was evening time. Kim was working late. And one of those good Midwestern storms started brewing up. And there was thunder and lightning and heavy wind. And, and my boys were terrified. They were scared. And, and, and I was sitting there and I was consoling them and I was comforting them. And I was telling them, we're okay. These walls are strong. This roof is strong. The danger is outside. We are inside. We're safe. We're fine. And right about when I'd finally convinced them that because we were inside and not outside, we were safe, right about that time, the tornado warning sounds. Now, we have no basement. My parents' house, three houses down, have a basement. So right about when I've said, we're good because we're here, 
right? I'm like, okay, boys, we got to go get your coats out. We got to go outside. We got to get to Nana's house. We got to go to Grandpa's, right? They should have looked at me and said, you daft man, how can we trust you with anything? You just said that because we were. They didn't say that. They got up. We went outside. We went to safety. Why did they not protest? Because of who I am in their life. Christ is Lord because he is Lord. Full stop. Now, if he's Lord of my life, he's Lord of everything in my life. If he's Lord of my life, he's Lord of my pocketbook. Why I think giving and tithing is one of the great practices of our faith. Because it's not just charity. We're not just being generous. We're not supporting a cause. When we give, we are making a regular public declaration, Christ is Lord. If he's Lord of my life, he's Lord of my pocketbook. If he's Lord of my life, he's Lord of my remote control. And of what I watch. If he's Lord of my life, he's Lord over my internet surfing and what I look at. If he's Lord of my life, he's Lord over the snooze button on Sunday morning. Right? I mean, if he's Lord of my life, he's Lord of my life. Now, I'm not trying to set up some sort of legalistic distinction, right, of how you can prove your faith. Because we read about it with the Pharisees today in the Gospel of Mark. Just because you do the right things doesn't mean your heart reveres him as Lord. But what I am telling you and what I am saying to myself is that if I ever or whenever I find myself in the position of arguing for my rights over against one of the Lord's commands, I'm not making him Lord of my life. If you love me, keep my commandments, he says. If I find myself defending my right to hold on to a dollar, if I find myself defending my right to only regularly attend a church rather than join it, if I find myself defending my right to not follow in baptism, if I find myself regularly defending a right to do anything against what Christ commands, He's not Lord of my life. Set apart Christ as Lord. Let me tell you what's going to happen when we do that. We're going to get noticed. People are going to see you're different. They're going to see I'm different. And they're going to come with questions. Now, they may come with accusations. They may come in enmity. They may come in seeking. They may come wanting certainty. But regardless, they will come with questions. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that you have. Wow. There's a lot in that. 
always be prepared. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but I want to tell you what I don't think it's saying. I don't think when Peter is saying always be prepared, he's talking about preparing for a test. I don't think he's talking about doing some sort of um, continual, constant, inordinate amount of study so that you're able to answer any possible outcome or question or challenge that may have come. I don't think that's what he's saying. And don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not encouraging that we don't pursue the questions of our faith. We do diligently every day. But when Peter talks about always be prepared, he's not saying you need to be a professor of the faith in order to talk of it. He's saying always be ready. Always be in a state of readiness to talk about it. Always be prepared for the conversation. To give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And when I first was studying that passage, giving an answer, the reason of the hope that you have, here's kind of what I pictured in my head was going on. Right? Sort of first century, little outdoor cafe. Julius is sitting on one side. Malchus is sitting on the other. They're having a conversation. Julius says to Malchus, who's recently become a Christian, I don't see you at the Thursday emperor worship meetings anymore. I was wondering, just where's your hope at? You know, and then Malchus replies with the gospel. The only problem with, with that picture is when Peter is writing to these churches, He's not talking about these congenial conversations. He's writing to people who are facing the threat of the magistrate and the hatred of the mob because of their faith. And so how is it that that Peter will say, be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Who's asking them about hope? And what if someone doesn't ask you about hope? I mean, I was trying to figure out this seemed to be a puzzle to me. But what if, what if what Peter is telling us is that regardless of the question, regardless of the challenge, regardless of the elements of the conversation about your faith, your answer is always about your hope. Your hope that you have in Christ. You see, when Peter talks about hope, when he, when he mentions hope in his letter, it's not this optimism. When he talks about hope, we read one of the verses at the first part of the service. When he talks about hope, he describes it as a living hope. As a hope in the God who raised Christ from the dead. As a hope in the coming of Christ. As a hope in the cross. When Peter talks about hope, it isn't wait till next year, it'll be better kind of hope. The hope is this grounded orientation that celebrates what Christ has done, what Christ is doing, and looks forward to what Christ will do. This hope is in the cross. That 
any question we get, any challenge we get, when we are discussing our faith, we are so focused in discussing the fact that we walk in hope. Now, it's an exclusive hope. Hope in Christ cannot be co-opted. Our hope in Christ does not commingle with other hopes. Our hope in Christ does not share position. Our hope in Christ is our hope in Christ alone. Last Easter, my uh, five-year-old, Josiah, comes running in from playing outside. Just a mess. You know, he's, he's crying. He's trying to talk. He's been he's been running, sprinting home all at the same time. You, you know, all that work, all that emotion and all that energy and all that desire to communicate is all blended together and just comes out as snot. You know? <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. You know, he's like, <laughs> you know, and he's really upset. And I'm like, what's bothering you? Well, some of his neighborhood playmates had been telling him there's no God. God is dead. So he's shaken to the core by this. And, and I'm alarmed. I mean, who's teaching these kids to say these things? And, and so I asked Josiah, I said, well, what did you say? And he tells me, he goes, I told him, I told him I love God and I love my family. You know, and I was like, all you had to do was add, I love United States of America. And you have that whole Tea Party platform, you know, kind of right there. Right? You know, but I think, I think what Josiah does, does there is what we often do. We conflate our hopes when we talk about who we are as a person we have several hopes we have sort of our christ hope that's our disaster insurance policy for lower issues we have a hope in our intellect a hope in our checking account our hope in our job our hope in our talents our hope in our family our hope in our church for bigger issues you know, we have a hope in the fact that we're Americans. We have a lot of hope that even though the world turns upside down, we're going to be okay because we're Americans. We have a lot of hope in that. And we conflate all of these hopes into our identity. But our hope is in Christ. Our hope is in a cross. Our hope is not in a flag. Right? Our hope isn't in that we enjoy freedom of speech and freedom of press and freedom of religion. Our hope is in that we enjoy freedom from sin and freedom from death and freedom from the judgment of the law. Our hope isn't in that we've been given the right to vote or been given the opportunity to pursue happiness. Our hope is that we are given a righteousness that doesn't belong to us. Our hope is not... You know, like we've seen on, on the television with Egypt, our hope is not that we are rescued from, the, from the, the dictates of a tyrant and into a democracy. Our hope is, is that we bend our knee in submission to the sovereignty of King Christ. This is our hope. And it doesn't share position. When we are asked questions about our life under the lordship of Christ, we don't do it because we have hope in how we've been brought up or in how we live. 
We do it because we have hope. Not only in the promises of Christ, but in the promise maker himself. That is our hope. So what separates, what makes a follower of Christ stand out is the lordship in their heart belongs to Christ and their hope is in the cross. But it's also the manner, the manner with which we talk about the whole thing. The manner with which we share it. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. But do this with gentleness and respect. Does that fit anywhere in our world? I mean, really, we measure the fidelity to principle by volume. If you really believe something strongly, you will have a lot of bombast and bravado. I mean, that's, that's how we seem to say he is uncompromising in his principles because look how angry and offended he is. Look how loud she is. I mean, it's certainly our politics. Now, don't get me wrong. I mean, sometimes there's a place for that. I love the Olympics, right? I love it whenever countries come together to compete with each other. I don't know. It's something that just resonates with me. I mean, I love, you know, when, when you're chanting USA, USA, right? And there's, a, there's that primal, you know, urge to just jump up and be like, yeah, that's right. We owned you in the Cold War and we owned you in mixed ice dancing, you know? I mean, there's <laughs> something about that that excites us. But with the gospel, gentleness and respect, is it only because of the esteem we hold other people in? I mean, is this do good and be gentle so that the difference between their violent behavior will be that much more distinct you know, like during the civil rights movement when you see the uh, racist you know, police officers opening the fire hose on the protesters and the distinction between the nonviolent resistance and the violent oppression is so evident. Or, or in the case, you know, in the story of India with Gandhi. And I think at one level that certainly is there. But in First in Peter, when, when he talks about our, the good works, our good works, he mentions them in terms of the day of Christ. Earlier in the letter, he says that on the day Christ, on the day that God visits, the pagans will have seen your good works and will glorify God because of them. And here I think there's the opposite of that, that, that when they see you know, your good behavior, they feel ashamed because they realize on that day when Christ comes, they will realize they were actually condemning God and that message. So I think when we are called to be gentle and respectful, it is not only out of esteem for everyone else, but it is out of humility to the overwhelming 
value of the message that we carry. To the undeserved nature of the message that we give. Somehow, in God's sovereign plan, He chose that broken vessels, broken vessels who struggle with calling Jesus Lord and who struggle with keeping the hope of the gospel in front of us, that we would be the ones to share the gospel. It's nothing that we boast in. There's nothing we bring to the table. It belongs to Him. This is the great love story. This is the love story of God who did not require that we pre-qualify for His love. Who did not need me to send Him a friend request before He would respond. Who did not expect me to take that first step. This is the great love story of God who ran to you and who ran to me, who ran all the way to the cross. Not because I loved him first. He ran so that he could take away my shame and take away my death and take away my brokenness and take away my burdens and take away my addictions and take away my sin. He ran to me out of love. This is the great love story. This is the love story that reverberates through eternity. And this love story will never end in separation and cannot end in divorce. Who can separate me from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. He wants to be your Savior, but know this. He is your Lord. There's going to come a day when everyone will bend the knee and confess that Jesus is Lord. Don't let the first time you say that be that day when all of humanity is laid out before Him. And He comes to you and you tremble in holy fear and say, My Lord, my hope, may He say, Welcome, my beloved. Or will you tremble in holy fear as He says, you say, my Lord, my judge. He responds, get away from me, you evildoer. I never knew you. Set apart Christ as Lord in your heart. Always be prepared 
to give an answer to anyone who asks for the reason, the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect and be not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power unto salvation.